Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. Today, I'm on with Melissa Harris and Juan Alfonso. Um, today, we're going to talk through marketing analytics, business, entrepreneurship. Um, I, I'm really excited for it. Melissa and Juan, would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure, I'll get started. My name is Melissa Harris, and I'm the founder and CEO of M. Harrison Co., a content and creative agency here in Chicago. We like to joke we're in the liposuction business, but a lot of what we do is to kind of suck the fat and the jargon out of um, your marketing and communications and make you super pointy. I love that. Juan? Hi, uh, my name is Juan Alfonso. I'm a digital marketing and paid advertising specialist, and I work with uh, M. Harris on a couple of projects. Very cool. Yeah, I was going through uh, your website for the different services you offer, um, and it was really cool because I've been watching Succession a lot recently, so when I saw <laughs> that there was like executive communications, that's where my head went. Is that is that kind of what you guys do? <laughs> well, uh, we work with clients of all of all sizes. We work with Stanford University, the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, the University of Illinois. So, so, uh, and sometimes we have the privilege of working directly with the CEO or the executive director on their message and communications, but not always. So, it really depends on on who we know at the firm and, and what they hire us for. But when we work with executives, we really work hard to make their language as plain as possible. We have this line that's we're here to help you matter more to more people. And if you're using a lot of jargon and if you're using a lot of lingo and you're using a lot of words that, 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 that only certain number of people can understand, that means your message is only getting to that one group of people. And for the most part, we work with companies that are trying to grow and that are trying to build a larger audience. So you have to speak to the larger world. You can't just speak to your own industry. Yeah. Um, how, how has COVID changed that kind of executive communication? Um, previously, it was probably all in person, but now a lot of this stuff is happening. I'm sure you even heard over Zoom, there was recently that CEO that that uh, laid off a bunch of people over Zoom. That's probably not a good way to communicate, got a lot of backlash. Um, so would you say that executive communication has changed post-COVID? Well, what I'd say is that no matter what kind of client it is, when COVID hit, every client had a crisis. We were a crisis communication firm, even if we weren't being paid to do crisis communication for every single client. And that's because every single client had to change the way that they operate. And anytime you are making swift operational changes, it is a communications challenge because you can't be swift unless everyone is rowing in the same direction and everyone is moving with you. So every business went into crisis and every business needed to figure out how to better communicate. I would argue, however, that of the massive societal shifts over the past couple of years, the one that made the biggest difference on communications was not the pandemic, but instead the racial reckoning 
that this country has had over the last year has in some ways more greatly impacted executive communications than the pandemic and is continuing to make executives more thoughtful, I think more open to input, um, and definitely more worried about whether they're saying and doing the right things. That's so interesting. Wow. And you definitely have that perspective because you're the one that they're bringing in to, to kind of solve this kind of stuff, to know if they're you know on the right track. Well, we're lucky in the sense that we, we, we were with them long before. So um, although our business did grow 59% this year, which was, wow, Juan, oh my God, 59%. Um, for the most part, the clients that we are advising on those really heavy and weighty matters, they were with us before the pandemic and before the racial reckoning. And having that long trusted relationship is is really, really important. I think it's hard to bring in a trusted advisor in the crisis. Um, you know, it really helps to have that relationship built, you know, in times of calm so that you uh, aren't also getting to know each other at the same time you're trying to deal with a really urgent matter. Yeah. So, Juan, I want to move over to you and ask about marketing execution and how that has changed over the last couple of years. You said that you were involved in paid search. Um, has that business changed at all since we have like primarily moved online? I know there's been a shift towards, um, you know, away from in-person events, um, you know, towards a lot of the online marketing channels. How have you seen the change happen over the last couple of years? Well, I personally got started in the industry, maybe on digital marketing specifically about six months before the pandemic hit. I had a lot of experience uh, in the years prior to that when I was working as a combat correspondent in the Marines. But really, when I came into the industry was kind of right before the pandemic and the whole giant digital marketing disruption happened. So I was kind of there on the ground floor of it. So I, I... I don't have a lot to say in terms of what happened beforehand. All that I can tell you is what I've been seeing working with various clients. And, you know, fundamentally that today the best way to put your brands in front of your market is through paid digital ad strategies. Um, and the ones that I'm typically recommending to most clients is Facebook and Google ads, depending on what the goal of that client is. I also would say that on the digital side, Juan, and tell me if I'm wrong, but this iOS privacy change rate has, again, I would say for the actual execution of all of our paid campaigns, you know, is an issue. Juan and I constantly are talking about, okay, how are we going to get around this with this client, right? I mean, Juan, would that, would that, did that feel like a sea change in the last couple of years? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know, kind of the way I just see it as a as the latest disruption, right? And the way that I tend to think about digital marketing is in terms of that next big disruption, whether it's a new platform that gives, you know, potential clients a new avenue for them to market in or restrictions on existing platforms. I'm already expecting those things to happen. So it's it's a matter of being able to roll with the punches. And on the, you know, the, the iOS update was definitely 
probably in 2021, the biggest disruption to digital marketing. And Facebook, you know, they rolled out their new conversions API tool, which helps to which helps to fix the issue. But now the problem that we're finding with a lot of clients is that in order to execute it correctly, there needs to be a little bit of development expertise on their end, which makes it much more complicated. It's it's no longer as simple as, hey, here's a platform, here's a series of tools, anybody can learn to use them. Now uh, companies need to be willing to hire outside developers or um, in order to implement a lot of these changes. So it's just getting even more and more technical and less user-friendly, whereas you know the big digital disruption of the last couple of years has been geared towards making um, everything in marketing much more user-friendly and democratized. Interesting. So it's almost getting more complicated um with time which is not usually the case but it's because it's Correct. it's because of regulation because of privacy regulation absolutely interesting and i think any business knows that the way to gain more market share is to simplify right <laughs> yeah uh so uh and to make it really easy but let me tell you as we you know Juan and i talk about this a lot you know with every depend with every client we have to come up with a new way or a specific way that needs that is determined by like what platform their website is, is hosted on what, what, what CMS tools they're using, you know, um, whether they have a developer in house or out of house, whether they have a developer at all. Um, and, um, you know, getting all of these things set up is, 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 a, is a much heavier lift. Juan, I want to, I want to ask about analytics. Cause you mentioned before the call that you use a lot of analytics that are included in the platforms and there's a lot of companies out there who have their own analytics you know they they just want to get the raw data and kind of cut it themselves so i want to ask why you like to go in the platform itself and um kind of like what are the circumstances under which you kind of have to build your own analytics versus use the ones that are in the platforms uh, great question. Um, so the the reason that I tend to use the analytics that are built into the platforms and trust them, say, more than, you know, uh, and, you know, porting over your pixel data to, say, you know, Google Analytics, for instance, is because the analytics inside of each of the platforms are built for that platform. Does that make sense? Like the algorithm for Facebook ads versus LinkedIn ads versus Google ads, they're all different and they're all black boxes. You know, us as the end users, we don't know the functional differences inside of them. We don't actually understand how the codes work, but we know that each platform is built to optimize for that code, for that algorithm. So I tend to trust the data coming in directly from the platform then then aggregating it all together into some super data hub like on Google Analytics for instance but for me I just want to speak at a, like a higher level you know I am I'm very much trying to coach my clients to not get into the minutia because it is a rabbit hole which you could spend you know, Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, right? And, you know, we really, at the, at the executive level, and when I'm talking to Juan about his analytics reports, you know, for our clients, I'm trying to, I'm trying to assess simply directionality. Like, are we headed in the right direction? 
or are we not? And, and if we are one, like what, you know, we have this like one, what, what, what indicates to you gives you the confidence that we're headed in the right direction or one, if we're not headed in the right direction, tell me what needs to change. Right. So uh, that's why I wanted Juan to kind of join this conversation is because that's the level that I care about. Right. And that any executive, I think, you know, should, should really care about unless you are like Juan and you are the digital marketing manager who really needs to live and breathe this like every single day. Yeah. So how do you communicate what's like quote unquote working um, for a business from a marketing perspective and like an analytics perspective? Why don't you take that one? I'd love to hear your answer. Okay. Uh, so from an analytics perspective, you know, it, it's, it, it, you know, question one is what is your goal, right? Because, you know, a client's goal could be to sell a product or it could be just to generate a lead to start a conversation. Or in some cases, some clients just want to increase the, you know, just the awareness of the brand, increase their followers. So depending on what the outcome is is going to depend is going to determine what would we would consider to be analytics that matter versus trash analytics right so for instance if if a client just wants Pete just wants more traffic to their page right you know that can be done really easily using say facebook brand awareness ads for you know just cents on the dollar or you know to make sure that they get the traffic page hit you know they might run facebook traffic ads but it all depends on what they're looking for they're looking for quality are they looking for volume so it, it it's difficult to answer without like say you know here's a scenario a company is trying to sell this product how would you go about doing it and it will from the execution side on the platforms, it, it it's a pretty cookie cutter process, right? Like we have systems in place. If your goal is this, here's step A, B, and C that we need to and that we need to achieve in order for you to get your goal. But whether or not impressions matter versus engagement versus people actually going to your site versus clicks, that's all determined by what the company's actual goal is. Yeah, it's it's a marketing is becoming a very customized mix for every business. I think that it has to match their audience and their product. And so that's, it's going to be a different configuration for each client. Well, we also like to remind people, it also has to be a product that serves, that, that solves a real and compelling and you know problem for, um, a client, you know, especially when you're early and you don't know if you have product market fit and you go out and you run an experiment, right. With a couple thousand dollars on one of these platforms and it doesn't get the results that you want. We always have to be really brutally honest with clients and say, look, we all agree that the creative is good. We all agree that the message is tight, right? Like, are you, do you really have a great product here? So we also encourage people when they, when, before they found product market fit, that they really have to consistently be evaluating, like, does, does, does this product solve a need, right? A problem, right? Does it solve a big enough problem, right? Are your customers actually on these platforms or making buying decisions on this plat- these platforms? So it's it's always you know in those very early stages I think a very delicate dance between you know asking a client whether they have a product that anyone wants um, as well as 
as well as saying, okay, is the strategy, is the strategy right? Yeah. Melissa, could you go more into that? Um, specifically like the idea of gauging interest in a product and how a company would do that? Yeah. I, I think this is actually the most useful, um, reasons for being on, uh, for being on these platforms, uh, aggressively is to test out new ideas and products. Um, there's, there's actually a term to this in marketing. It's called demand testing. But I like to say in English that you should never make a product until you've already sold it. So let me give you an example. Um, Harry's, the famous, you know, kind of now well-known shaving. Yeah, uh, I'm a client. I'm a customer. (laughs) There you go. Launched launched with a demand test. And what they did is they put, um, and the code for this is actually available for free uh, for download on the internet. They put a Facebook, uh, I don't even know, you know, basically add up that gave a two to three sentence description of Harry's and it said, uh, click here to give us your email address and be notified when, uh, when the product becomes available, but they added like another thing to it. They added a referral component to it where if, um, each time you gave, if you gave your address, you've got a little code, a little, uh, link. And anyone else who also signed up to be notified uh, using that link got you essentially points. And if you had, I think it was more than 25 people sign up, um, you got a whole free, you know, month's worth of, of a kit. And what that, what, what, what Harry then was able to do is before they even launched the product, before they even launched the product, they were able to go to investors and say, I'm making this up, but it was a lot of people, 10,000 people not only have said that they want to buy our product when it's available for sale, but they've been willing to give them our email address, their email addresses to be notified when it's available for sale. And of those 10,000 people, um, 2,000 of them have even gone and evangelized and told their friends and had their friends actually sign up you know, based on just a brief description of the company. And this is called a demand test, and it really de-risks startups um, for investment. You put ad spend often behind these uh, these requests for emails, and it gives you a really good sense of how hard it's going to be to acquire customers on these channels before you've gone and invested millions of dollars in operations and in the product and, and, and the product itself operations fulfillment sales marketing right um and it's known as a demand test and, and i just if you're an entrepreneur listening to this it is the way to go yeah that makes a lot of sense i'm so glad that you shared that and um melissa can you tell us about your teaching career well, yeah, so um i i'm a graduate of the university of chicago's Booth school of business Juan and i actually have similar backgrounds we're both former journalists I was a journalist for 15 years. Juan was a journalist in the Marine Corps for many, many years. And um, so we found, we've had a very unusual path into marketing, but mine went through the Booth School of Business. And when I came out, uh, the school asked me to uh, become an entrepreneur in residence at the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation, um, which is the entrepreneurship center at the University of Chicago. And there I, I teach seminars on marketing strategy on uh, media and PR, on public speaking, on uh, social media and content, 
on digital marketing 101 because I'm the 101 gal, like Juan nice. is the 201 guy. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and then I also coach startups. So I see about 100 startups a year, uh, you know, advising them on how to figure out to really focus all my work on product market fit. You know, do you have a product that people want to buy, enough people want to buy it to make it make sense for you to start the company and do enough people want to pay a high enough price for it to make the company make like financial sense as well. So uh, that's, that's what I do there. That's really cool. What would you say is commonly the issue with startups? Is it usually the product or usually the marketing and communications? In order for you to have a startup that is truly venture backable and like able to be venture backed, you need to have an explosive reaction from the moment that someone hears the description of the product. I can give you some really, a couple of examples from my own life, and I want you guys to think about it too. I'm sure you can. You know, when I first heard of Uber, but like I didn't have to wait outside in the freezing cold, like negative windchill for a taxi to come around for like in the next century. I mean, it was like, hallelujah. You know, it was just, it was, it was like, I can wait inside and I can see on my phone that a car, when a car is pulling up, and I don't have to stand on the corner anymore. Like that's an explosive reaction when you're like, thank God you solved my problem. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, even with simpler things, I have a clock that sits next to me uh, on my desk that I bought on Kickstarter. That is uh, not an obnoxious alarm clock, but like a gradual wake up alarm clock. And I was like, Oh, I need that. If I have to hear that iPhone, you know, go off like it's, you know, an emergency one more time, you know. Um, so you can think of products in your in your lifetime where the moment you've seen them, you've been like, I need that. This is almost giving me the the thought of like how a DJ would do a set where they or a comedian, how a comedian would do a set where they would have this core idea and then they would like try out different ways to express it and gauge the audience's reaction and then kind of keep that same idea every time they perform it, but then with slight alterations and kind of monitor if that improved or uh, improved the audience reaction. I think a comedian is a perfect example. You know, a comedian doesn't, you know, take their take fresh material on The Tonight Show. They just don't. Right. They, they go out and they test it in Omaha and, you know, you know, uh, Moline and Cincinnati and Indianapolis, all places I love, by the way. Um, but, you know, they, they, they do not test, they do not deliver new material on The Tonight Show. They, they test it and they iterate it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's like, it's all about the reaction from the audience and trying to like hone in on what is causing that reaction. Like what is the key value here? Like for the Cybertruck, like not just like that it's cool, but like what, why do I want it? And that's like a different answer. Uh, Cause it's a lot of things are cool. Um, so to me as like a consumer, like I, I may not know, I, well, it's my job to know why I want it. Um, so I, I guess I have to like do more research, but like I, it's an emotional thing for me um, as, as a customer, like, I feel like I can relate to the product or like, I just feel like it's a good value product. 
Um, I sometimes I think that com- the communicating the value is complicated because even sometimes the consumer doesn't really know um, exactly why they they need that product, but they they still have that feeling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I appreciate that on a digital marketing podcast, we've got to the recognition that this is as much art as it is science. And, um, but I will say around value, you know, that takes you to the next P, which is price, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you have to have the product right, you have to have the price right before you then can even think about, you know, okay, is the problem the promotion? Or is the problem the place where I'm putting this promotion or the distribution channel I'm using? Because it, it's almost like the, the four P's are taught as a circle, kind of as a circular thing, like they all have to be right and they do. But for the advertising to really work, um, any kind of advertising, I think of it more as a, as, a, as a top to bottom, like what's most important and that is product and then price. Before you then to get, okay, what's the message? What's the creative? What's the ad that we're putting on Facebook? What's the ad that we're putting on Google, right? And then the fourth thing you have to figure out is like, okay, does this ad match the audience needs? Does it convey, does it convey, you know, the value that we're providing to the customer? Um, And, you know, so, so that's like, I think the, I think we've seen, you know, a lot of cases, especially with very new products where, you know, they don't know, they haven't validated whether the product is going to take off or not. And then they do the digital marketing and they are, they are disappointed in the results. And I think there are often, you know, two things. There's, there's obviously product and price we've talked about, but another issue is, is the product right for this distribution channel? Because, you know, I've had clients trying to sell things that are only available, like complex financial instruments that are only available to say accredited investors, you know, over, you know, Facebook and Instagram. And like, this is crazy. Even LinkedIn, right? Like, this is crazy. Is it like, who, who is going to make a, how many people in this world are going to make a $250,000 investment off of a Facebook ad? The answer is one or two, right? In the whole world, right? So, so it really, the, like, the next thing becomes, okay, is your, is your product right for the digital platform and the more expensive the product and the longer and harder the commitment is, the harder it is to kind of gain um, traction right over over a digital platform you know when you think about these big contracts and deals that b2b businesses sell you know you're gonna have five six seven eight nine in-person sales meetings before some of those um contracts are signed so you know in those kind of cases the funnel gets really wide and, and it really long and and taking people from the top to the bottom takes time and a lot of people don't have patience for it so I think that's, uh, you know, like the, the final big thing before you get into all the data and the, and the crunching is saying like, okay, is this really a product that we can sell over the internet, right? Is this really a product, you know, and how do we get people, yes, we can do awareness on these platforms. So how do we level set the expectations of our client and being like, listen, this is awareness. This is not conversion. You're going to have to do these other eight or nine things with these leads that we give you in order to actually convert them. Um, and you know, is this really the quickest way, right. To, to your goals. So it, it really does depend on like the business and how, how big of a commitment is, what the price point is, how narrow the audience is, whether it's a right fit for, for, you know, paid LinkedIn, um, or paid Google advertising. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. So you you started with telling us about the upper funnel, and I want to ask about kind of like the mid and lower funnel. And the question I have is a lot of the time the um, a lot of the time customers don't go through the funnel as is expected. So how do you right. yeah? So how do you like help a business decide how much they should be spending when? A lot of the time, you know, a customer is not going to go directly from Facebook to your website to schedule a call to close right away. You know, that's like extremely rare for them to do exactly what what's laid out. So how do you like know how to construct that funnel? Well, I'm going to kick that over to you. I'm curious what you say um, before I jump in. Yeah. Um, so probably the easiest way to get around that particular issue is so we know that, you know, let's say I'm selling a product, right? Like they have to find the product online and, you know, they're going to find it either through, you know, your social media marketing, through the website, through because of your ads, it doesn't matter, but what's in, but this is kind of where the data and analytics portion is really important. You know, you want to make sure that you've got your Google analytics hooked up to your homepage. You want to make sure that you have your Facebook pixel hooked up to your homepage as well, because what, what those tools are going to do, and, and of course the conversions API as well, because what those tools are going to do is as long as all of your products are, are in some way tangentially connected to that to that domain that you're that you're tracking, you'll be able to see exactly where people are coming from. You know, and you'll be able to figure out whether or not, say for instance, you know, Google ads versus Facebook ads ads to go based on based on based on the data that's being collected on the website telling us you know the ads we're running on Google in this case seem to be far more effective and then we can make a more holistic decision as to whether or not we want to stop running Facebook ads or if maybe we want to try some kind of different targeting before we give up on it to see if it can uh, to see if the results can match or even be better than uh, than Google so you can you can essentially Use the different analytics boards and play around with them in, in in order to figure out where customers are coming in on your funnel and figure out what needs to be trimmed off. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, so it's like it's that at that point it's all about measuring and optimizing. And actually, on that note, because that's that's kind of like where I live in in the business world and. Um, one, one thing that I, I think is right, and I'm curious your reaction to it, is that y- there is no optimal mix without testing. You need to like take small steps in an optimal direction, and that is a better way to approach an optimal mix than to just come up with like a hypothetical mix. Does that make sense? Uh, like taking small yeah, steps? Absolutely. 110%. <laughs> like we, we, I try to call... All, when I'm talking to my clients, I try to describe everything we do uh, in the in this world world realm as an experiment, even if we're like, even if we're seven months in, because even if we're seven months in, we still should be experimenting with new content, new ideas, new channels, new targeting tactics, right? Um, while we continue to run the ones that we know are tried and true, right? Um, we, you know, so I really try in all of my communications with our clients, like, listen, you are going to have to try a bunch and bunch, a bunch of things, five acts, what you think in order to get this like, right. 
And even when you get it right, there's always new things to be trying and to be testing, especially if you have multiple products, right? And you um, are launching new products. With every new product, you're going to have to find that right strategy and retest and re-experiment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm Juan, do you have any favorite analytics that you like to look at for mid-funnel? That's been a thing on, on my mind. I guess engagement rate is a good one, but have you heard of anything that like that particularly interests you? you have any favorite met- metrics? Uh, can, can you define what you mean by mid-funnel? Yeah, like gauging customer interest in your website. You know, like the part of the funnel where you're driving customers to your website and then you're trying to figure out if they like it. Along engagement, I like to see along, it's a, for me, it's along the lines of engagement, but I like to look at the number of comments. I, I think that's the journalist in me who used to like obsess over the comments on the bottom of her stories. Um, but um, I do like engage, engagement is absolutely right. That's what we look at. But I, but I also actually like to go in and say, like, see who feels like so strongly about this, that they were willing to comment one way or the other. Um and I think that's because increasingly, like I was just buying a, I just bought for my husband for Christmas, a, uh, a portable pizza oven. He's always wanted a pizza, one of those Oni's, they're Oni's, I don't know if they're, it's O-O-N-I, you know, and before I went and bought it, I will admit, I, you know, I looked at all the comments on the ads that I, on the ad that I saw, right? And there were, there were hundreds of comments. So the first thing was just good to see the volume of comments, right? And I was in that stage where I was considering, is this the model that I buy or I do I buy a competitor? I'd already determined that I was going to buy a pizza oven for my husband. Now the question was, which one, right? And I admit to scrolling through and reading almost all like 450 comments, right? To read all, it's a big purchase. It's an $800, you know, purchase. And so I literally read all the comments. And what I was most impressed by with this brand was that every single comment, even if it was positive or negative, had a response from the from the brand, from the owner. And um, we handle, um, you know, Google My Business and Google Reviews for uh, a two Michelin starred restaurant called Ever. And we respond to every single comment on our page within an hour i get a live alert and we respond immediately so i really love like monitoring those comments not just from a quantitative perspective but from a qualitative and sentiment perspective and and i love to dig into that world and make sure that we respond really really promptly you know another reason that that's just a great best practice you know taking it back to the analytics side of it is because it's one of the easiest ways to game pretty much all of the social media algorithms i mean it's it's no secret at this point the way that all social media works is the more popular content is the more that it gets pushed to a wider outside audience so every single comment bumps you up the algorithm. Every single response bumps you up the algorithm. So if you can get a chain of conversations going, you know, that's really the key to whether or not content has the potential to go viral or not. Correct. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's that's a great way to look at engagement. 
and it brings me to this question where, you know, I, I read that there's a substantial amount of online reviews that are fake. And I know, yeah, it's like 30% at least. (laughs) I know. And it's funny as I was looking through these pizza reviews, I was like, okay, which ones do I think of these are real? And which ones do I think are fake? You know, and that's also what I appreciated about the volume. I was like, there is no way that all 450 of these reviews are fake, right? Um, But I like this idea that you should consider one in every 10 or so, or maybe two in every 10 fake. And man, if some of these were fake, they are really, really good fakers because there was just so much you know, kind of information down to like the most minutia of detail, right? You can tell people, people were passionate. People are passionate about this pizza oven, right? Um, so I think that is a good rule of thumb that one, one in every, um, I would say one in every 10. At Ever, I would say it's a little lower because we can actually see who our customers actually are because we have a database of all of our diners. So so I actually, at least on high-end restaurants, and we work with several of them, it's actually much lower. I would say that, um, you know, I would say that only about 2% of all of our reviews, or maybe 1%, but two in every 100 are fake, and we know when they're fake. So, um, and, and when they're fake, we immediately flag them to Google, of course, Google doesn't do anything about it. But <laughs> um, but every time we flag and we say we know that this person did not dine, you know, at the restaurant, right? So um, yeah, you're right, but um, minimal impact. It's it's really hard, I think, to fake 500 or so reviews, right? Right. Um, you know. Yeah, there's also kind of a data ethics kind of question that. <laughs> that goes into it as well. So, you know, is it just, you know, unscrupulous brands that are, you know, that are putting these fake reviews? And, you know, if we were talking about 10 years ago, I think that all of us could have universally agreed that, yeah, it, it, it's pretty unethical to do that. But the digital marketing, the way that it works is, is completely changed the way that we should think about those kinds of practices or even in some automated practices. Because if you're going to, let's say that you're a new brand, and let's just take a simple example, like I sell pet toys, right? You know, you are swimming in an ocean of competitors with you know who have had years to build their followings who have had years to to gain brand recognition and you're just a drop in that digital marketing ocean without any data to 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 help the algorithms you know push you in front of of people so there's a lot of there's two ways you can do it there's well they always involve each other, right? You know, there's the hard legwork of, you know, having a marketing team who's going to who's gonna take care of all of the organic engagement, who are going to be kind of your digital marketing foot soldiers to try and get you those comments and those likes and, you know, what you need to for, for the algorithms on the different platforms to start bumping you up. So the question becomes, you know, in the long run, if, uh, you know, let's say that we're going to put up 50 fake reviews today just to get just to get things started, just to get the algorithm to put us in front of a couple of people, whether or not that's ethical or not, I think it's a pretty gray area given the current state of digital marketing. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like hacking, uh, success hacking almost like (laughs) fake it till you make it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, so it's it's a double edged sword. It's it's but it's like um like any metric, any good. Well, like any metric, you know, there's probably going to be a way to uh, juice it a little bit. Um, you know, especially when it comes to engagement. But you know, it really doesn't help anybody. Um, because you don't know, like, if the success is because you were forcing it or because, um, you know, people were genuinely engaging with it. I agree. And I think that these days, you know, people are skeptical of a small number of reviews. So you really need to, you know, it's really hard. I always remind myself, it's very hard to fake volume. Um, you know, um, I think it, it just goes back to product though. Like, let's say you, let's say you do, we, we, by the way, have a policy that we do not do this as a farm, but let's say somebody is unscrupulous and they're juicing, right? I, I do have to tell you that no amount of marketing is going to make up for a shitty product. You know, I mean, you know, it's going to break and you're either not going to buy it again, or you're going to go online and you're going to say, Hey, I'm a real person. My order arrived on eleven twenty four. It was broken <laughs> within forty eight hours. Never break, never buy it again. And that one you know, and will, then you're yeah. also gonna tell your friends because yeah. you're so pissed. You may even post on Facebook or on LinkedIn or on Twitter or on Instagram or whatever and say, This product sucks. Do not buy this. I'm telling you, do not buy this. It's a scam. I firmly believe that when you if you screw it up, the masses will will find out, will sniff you out and will beat you. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really good perspective. And, and I appreciate that you have such a focus on product because um, I think marketing, there's, there's this like, there's this feeling that it's like a, um, like a silver bullet where, you know, you can fix anything with the right marketing, just get a good marketer in there. But it's really more of like a boost to a good product um, where it's not going to make, it's not going to make up for anything. Yeah. What you just described is the marketing around marketing, that it's magic. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times we're, we're, we're having to explain to clients that no, 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 this isn't magic. This, what this is going to be is a, is a lot of scientific testing backed up with some really artistic and creative ideas. Mm -hmm. yes. Obviously the executives are going to be thinking in terms of return, but it's hard for marketers to think in terms of return. Um, so can you speak to like the difference of what you're looking at or what you're talking about when you tell executives about performance versus like more technical people? Yeah, I think that, and Juan jump in here, but I think that it's easier for our clients that are trying to gain influence and awareness. The hardest ones are the ones that are trying to like hit a sale off the, you know, off it. I'll give you an example. Like we work with the American Academy of Pediatrics, right? And they're trying to increase confidence in the COVID vaccine across the nation. And that truly is a true care awareness campaign where they're trying to get a set of key messages in front of as many households in vaccine resi resistant zip codes as possible, right? And they're really, you can really tell if it's working based on the percentage of people who actually watch the whole video. So, you know, if you stay around long enough, right, and watch the whole thing, right, um, that's a really good, at least, sense that your message has been, like, you know, at least delivered, right? Um, 
And, and really like when you have those kind of goals, it's easy, it's easier to explain. It's really hard on the sales attribution stuff and it's getting harder for all the reasons Juan talked about with the iOS stuff. You know, I don't know about you, but when I see an ad, I rarely, if ever, click. This is to your point of like the funnel never really works like the funnel's supposed to. You know, I go and then Google the brand. I go and read reviews, maybe on another site about the brand. Right? I might even post on my own feed. Has anyone been to this place or purchased this before? Any thoughts? Right? And and I do all of that before then I go back and and you know and and I'm not. I just go to the website and buy it. Right. Um, I'm not going to go back and try and refine that ad, right? And to click through it, right? So I think it's a really, it's just a jungle out there on attribution. And it's what, you know, most of our clients want, but it is very, very, very hard to deliver. Yeah. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants to know the return. But it's, um, that's, that's the thing is like w- with Upper Funnel, it requires such complex data science to model what the impact is. So I think as an industry, we need to, yeah, there's room for, for innovation in that area. So on a paid advertising side, it, it's pretty easy to communicate to them, you know, what's happening with their ROI, right? You know, if I'm selling a direct product, you know, the platform tells me right there, it, it takes, it, you know, it takes me $5 worth of ads in order to generate a purchase. You know, that purchase is $20. And then we can talk to the client about whether or not that work um, that works for them. But when it comes to why marketing is important in general, like everyone knows that they need to do marketing in order to sell a product, right? But a lot of the times it's getting to understand why it's in, why things like the amount of people that follow your Instagram are important. You know, you're not getting, you're not making direct sales off of that audience, and you're putting in a lot of effort and a lot of money into trying to grow the audience. So, uh, so a lot of the times, what I end up telling clients is that one of the easiest ways to kind of make them understand the value of it is bringing it back to like the evaluation of their company, because we know uh, that today, especially with a lot of with a lot of startups, you know, what the size of your social media audience and how engaged how engaged they are can have a significant impact as to what the evaluation is for your company. Um, all I would say is that sometimes yes and sometimes not. There was a story in the New York Times yesterday that oh my gosh, I mean if I, I'm I'm tempted, I'm gonna put it on my my own social feed. Here's the headline: Millions of followers question mark for book sales. It's unreliable. Social media fandom can help authors score big book deals and bigger advances, but does it translate to how how a new title will sell? Publishers are increasingly skeptical, and this is the example that they gave. A book by Billie Eilish seemed like a great bet. One of the most famous pop stars in the world, she has 97 million followers on Instagram and 6 million on Twitter. If just a fraction of them bought her book, it would be a hit. But her self-titled book has sold about 64,000 hardcover copies since it came out in May. Um, And the book cost her publisher well over 1 million. (laughs) (laughs) So um, let's put it this way. Uh, They aren't going to make back their advance. Right. So, um, you know, it's really, I do think it's, um, you know, 64,000 they write here would not be a disappointing number unless Miss Eilish got a big advance, which of course she did. (laughs) So, um, you know, um, 
it, well, it, pro, pro, there's a, there's a product market awesome. fit issue there. Exactly. That's <laughs> right. That's exactly yeah. right. And that's what it comes yeah. down to. You know, yeah, her, because yeah. you know what a big question I have here after reading this is, was the book any good? Was the product any good? And this is where I say that no amount of marketing can make up for a shitty product. Yeah, and it's like if I was going to do a post mo like a uh, post mortem on on that on their advertising campaign, you know, my first question was going to be this. Okay, so she had a, she had over a million followers on Instagram, for instance. What was oh, the average age? Seven million. Oh, great, great. Seven million followers. <laughs> but, but, yeah, on the question on is, <laughs> what's their average age? Right? Is this market the kind of people that are into her because they really like her music, or are they the kind of people that would actually sit down and read a book? You know, if yeah. if ninety percent of your followers are between the ages of like fourteen and twenty, you're probably not going to sell a lot of books. Yeah, exactly. This is hilarious. This is a line from one of the publishers at St. Martin's Press, which I don't think publisher books. We learned some hard lessons along the way, which is that a tweet or a post is not necessarily going to sell any books if it's not the right person with the right book and the right followers at the right time. Product, market, fit. Product, market, fit. I think that's the lesson here. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I, I want to thank Maybe you. Maybe she tries again in 20 years and the majority of her fans are, you know, 30s, 40s. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it and good luck. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.